the Triathlon Show, 362. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and on today's episode I interview Dr. Nikki Winfield Almquist. Nikki is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Copenhagen, and in this interview we discuss a recent study, or at least recently published study, comparing the effects of 12 weeks of block periodization with traditional periodization, as you will hear in the interview the actual study was conducted uh, a few years back in 2019 or 2020 from memory, but it was just uh, released and published a few months ago. Uh, so we'll go into that and also discuss the general evidence prior to the study around block periodization versus traditional periodization. And of course, we will discuss practical takeaways on the use of these different periodization patterns. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors, uh, Precision Fuel and Hydration. Uh, Precision Fuel and Hydration create sports nutrition products, including fueling and hydration products, and they help you use them effectively through a range of free tools, services, and content. They have a fantastic fuel and hydration planner on their website that can be your one-stop shop for figuring out an effective race hydration and fueling strategy for you. It's free and super easy to use. It only takes a couple of minutes to answer a handful of questions, and then you can get a detailed, simple, and effective race plan. They also offer free video consultations. As a listener of the podcast, you can get 15% off your order of their range of electrolyte and carbohydrate products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. If you want to go faster in the water, then look to Roka's range of wetsuits. From the entry level to the top of the line wetsuits, all of them come with arms up technology and exceptional quality and comfort in the water. Roka's tri suits work perfectly together with the wetsuits as they too come with arms up technology to really maximize your shoulder mobility for the swim. And on the bike and the run, they are optimized for aerodynamics and comfort. Roka's range of sunglasses and prescription glasses are also packed with innovation with patented technologies such as the Geeko anti-slip technology. They are ultra light and have excellent pro- optical properties. Visit roka.com for slash TTS for 20% off your order. Now, without any further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Nikki Winfield Alquist. Welcome back to that triathlon show, Nikki. How are you doing? Fine, thank you, Michael. And how are you? Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm good. Uh, as we just discussed, uh, a little bit sore legs, just getting from a long run, but that's <laughs> yeah. all all good. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's been a while since uh, I think it was in episode 300, and this will be episode 360 or 60 something. So a bit more than a year since last time you were on the podcast. So can you just re- uh, remind the listeners who you are and uh, give us a, a bit of an introduction to yourself? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm uh, Nikki Winfield Elmquist. Uh, I'm a postdoc at the University of Copenhagen, the Department of Nutrition, Exercise and Sports. Um, in the Professor Bentekeen's group, uh, where we focus a lot on lipid metabolism and uh, generally nutrition in relation to um, endurance training. Yeah, and uh, some of the recent research that you have done has nothing to do with lipid metabolism, though. And that's what uh, I found was a really interesting study. So we'll go into that today. It was about 
uh, block periodization versus traditional periodization. So maybe if you can first introduce the topic itself and a bit of the background of the research and and even just the anecdotal uh, information that exists. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so just to to inform the listeners, uh, this study I'm, we are going to discuss with the block and traditional periodization was uh, done during my PhD in the Norway University of Applied Sciences in Lillehammer, and that was together with Professor Ben Wanderstad and Irvin Sandberg. Um, and we did this study in trained subjects, both male and female, uh, where we wanted to compare the effects of a long block periodization of endurance training compared to a more traditional approach. Um, so just for the listeners to, to summarize, what is block periodization? The the main identifying factors of block periodization is it prioritized development of specific abilities in succession to avoid possible conflicting stimuli. That is the hypothesis. Uh, so, for instance, focusing on only high-intensity training for a short block, for instance, a week, and then switching to more low-intensity training afterwards and just maintaining, for instance, one exercise of high-intensity training during the couple the following weeks. So that would be a block periodization approach. On the other hand, the traditional periodization is just a mix, and this is what many athletes do. Uh, we just mix low-intensity, high-intensity, moderate-intensity exercises during the weeks, uh, and that's just a mix match of, of all the signals. So in theory, focusing on one thing might improve and um, more, uh, by not hampering uh, or giving diet differential um, responses to exercise, if that makes sense. So that is uh, that was the, the background of why introducing block periodization. Um, from our group, from my uh, good friend, uh, Knut Sinter-Mölmö, they produced a meta-analysis meta uh, summarizing the effects of block periodization studies and found that it had that Block periodization uh, had a small uh, beneficial effect on VO2 max adaptations and maximum aerobic power adaptations compared to the traditional training, uh, traditional periodization. Um, but as I also discussed in the meta-analysis, there was a big divergence between the studies, which possibly due to low sample sizes and difference in training programs, for instance, only combining low-intensity and high-intensity training and not including moderate intensity. Um, there's also a difference between ages and sexes and the performance level of the participants. So it's a, it's a small effect they were looking at and maybe a bit inconclusive. Um, so and, we and wanted to remember, investigate that. Sorry, do, do you yeah. remember how many studies were included in that meta-analysis? Because uh, not, for not many, uh, as I recall. Uh, I guess less than... Uh, Less than ten, as I, if I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. if I remember correctly. Um, so it's it's an understudied area. Uh, so we wanted to add that, uh, add to that by doing the study. Um, and just for just as a point, we we know from descriptional studies that the best practice training show an inclusion of all intensities of endurance exercise. So both low intensity, moderate and high intensities. Um, and usually they are done in a pyramidal, pyramidal uh, distribution. So 
majority is low intensity, little more is moderate intensity, and the least is high intensity. If you calculate how much time they are spending in the three different zones. Um, so that is an argument for also including moderate intensities if you want to block periodizations uh, or compare block periodization with traditional periodization. Um, furthermore, which uh, what also is uh, the standard for athletes is that you have a progression in your training load. So you don't just do the same exact same interval. You maybe maybe you add um, another another session or do longer intervals at high intensities or, and so on, just to try to always try to push your limits. Um, and that has not been in, investigated in in the previous. Um, papers who yeah investigated blood periodization so we wanted to uh, take that into account as well um, by producing a progressive not overload per se but a progressive increase in training load we are, we also looked into some of the molecular signaling so when we did this study and on the molecular level differentiating training stimuli might hypothetically help avoid stagnation and muscular adaptations uh, as we see in when untrained, they are doing exactly the same exercise. And as they become better, you, you will see that the adaptations uh, slowly <laughs> decline. Uh, so this might have theoretically favor block periodization, but could also be the same with the, if you do traditional periodization where you gradually increase the load of training. Um, so we wanted to compare those two uh, methods. And, and yeah, and just to be clear, in most of the previous research, when block periodization was compared with traditional periodization, that had not been the case. It had not been progressive. It was more yeah. the same thing week after week in the yeah. traditional periodization. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, so that was exactly. a, yeah, um, got it. And and just one other thing about kind of the background of it all. You mentioned the observational studies uh, that you took inspiration from when designing the actual protocol for the traditional periodization. Um, but what about block periodization? Has, has block periodization ever been seen in any observational studies, even case studies? Well, I know of some case studies, but they were, I guess, interventions rather than observational. So is block periodization very theoretical or does it exist out there in practice as well? Oh, as far as far as I know, it it really does exist. We have two cases in uh, in Norway, at least. These are case studies. We had the studies p- produced um, by Kuro uh, Soli, uh, um, who tracked the the training regime of the most winning uh, Winter Olympic female athlete um, of all time, where she had a, a period where she d- did block periodization. She also had a period of traditional periodization. We can come back to the results later, but this uh, this is certainly something that the best athletes in the world uh, do. How how many of the um, triathletes uh, does this? A cyclist does this? Is to my at least in my experience uh, less known, but I uh, I have heard that some of the best triathletes also uh, experiment with the block periodization. Um, and it's mm-hmm. been a long, it's been along for around for a while. Uh, it's yeah, just, I think it first described in this 
80 or 70s um yeah 70s um by Sudan, for instance so yeah so so let's get into the the methods the interventions of uh, and and the subjects and so on can you describe that uh, in a little bit of detail yeah of course we um we included 30 participants of which four were women in the, in the study and as i said this was uh, trained subjects with a VO2 max of around 58 milliliters per kilo. Um, they were regularly exercising, not much, six, six, seven hours a week. So this is a group where we would expect that adaptations might occur within a 12-week uh, bulk periodization or traditional periodization. Um, could also mention that many of the studies we've done before are a bit shorter in duration, only five, up to five weeks. So we also wanted to see what happens initially after four weeks and what happens after 12 weeks if we prolong the period. And so that's what we aimed at here. Um, and what, uh, what we did was increasing the training load, total training load around 40, 50% of compared to their normal training. So we get a solid response in both groups. <clears throat> the intervals we used we did low intensity training was free they were that was just on their own accord so that could be uh running cross-country skiing cycling um just low intensity keeping using the heart rate monitors um but for all the moderate intensity and high intensity sessions they came to the lab and did them together so they were supervised and Our moderate intensity intervals was basically four 12-minute intervals at around 14, 16, 17 on the, on the Borg scale, um, whereas the high-intensity intervals was five times five minutes um, and higher up towards uh, 18, 19 uh, on the Borg scale. Yeah, so classic kind of threshold intervals versus VO2 max intervals. Yeah, exactly. Um The trick with the traditional periodization group was then that we gradually increased the load. So we did uh, three mesocycles of four weeks. So for the traditional periodization group, we started with three, um, 12 minutes and four or five minutes in the first week. And the second week we increased by one so they did four 12 minutes and five five minutes and the last one they did five 12 minutes and six five minutes intervals so we gradually increased the load and then after these three weeks they had a recovery week in order to yeah <laughs> um recover for, from this sure. the block period following in the in the following massive cycles did they do the same progression yeah. again starting from three four five yeah uh, exactly yeah. exactly and then building up again um yeah. so we have this increase for during the three weeks and then recovery week and then increase in three weeks recovery week yeah. increase and for the block group we sort of got it all together so the first week was moderate intensity training so they only performed moderate intensity uh, intervals Next week was only low intensity, and then the third week was high intensity, and then they also had a recovery week. And they repeated that three times, total 12 weeks. 
Yeah, and and it was matched, so they did the exact same number of the same workouts. So if I do my math correctly now, they did three of those moderate intensity workouts, and then, or was it four? Four. Uh, Four in one week, yeah, and uh, and then four of the high intensity in the in high intensity week. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, what can you just what, what was the level again in terms of VO two max or or so? Do you do you remember? So it was uh, around fifty eight milliliters per minute uh, minute per kilo. Um, so we could say that the, these were trained subjects. Um, this is the average of both ma- both male and, and female. Um, mm. So for the males, as I recall, it was around sixty. In both groups and the females were, were around 52 yeah yeah so on average trained people yeah and uh, you measured uh, a lot of things actually so can you can yeah. you describe that what were the variables that you that you measured yeah we we used this, the same uh, protocol as we <laughs> use uh, in Lilamba. so we we start we start the first day with the lactate profile we increase gradually until we reach levels above four millimoles of lactate. Um, so this is a kind of warm-up um, step test. Then we have uh, had a six-second all-out sprint, followed by a VO2max test, ramp test, increasing 25 watts per minute. Then they had a short break, and then continued with 45 minutes of continuous cycling at 60% of VO2max, so normal easy ride um, and then they concluded the test with a five minute time trial and this was for the first uh, day the second day they came back had muscle biopsy we did a 40 minute time trial and then we measured the blood volume so a lot of measures um, from uh, <laughs> from this yeah and there was then repeated of course at the end of the intervention but was it also repeated after that that initial four weeks uh, or was that not part of the four-week assessment the four-week assessment we only did the first uh, first day so we they only did uh, the the blood lactate profile via to max and concluded five minute test yeah all right. So what did you then find in the end? What were the results? <laughs> well, uh, the main thing is that training works, of course. <laughs> we see a, a huge improvement in, in both groups uh, on both the power output at 4 millimoles of lactate, increases in uh, maximal aerobic power, 5-minute time trial power, and 40-minute time trial power. Um, but the interesting thing was that we did not see any differences in improvements. So both groups improved uh, in the in the area of um, eight to ten percent for these measures. Um, interestingly, we did not see any changes in VO2 max in uh, in either group. Um, but an interesting thing was that we found that the gross efficiency, the efficiency when they got fatigued was improved, uh, but to a similar similar extent. So just in increasing the training load as they did, they became more fatigue resistant or they improved their durability, as you could say. Um, 
But the interesting findings here, are, of course, were the differences between the two groups. And we measured the red blood cell volume, um, and we found that red blood cell volume increased 10% more in the blood periodization group, whereas in the traditional periodization group, we found that capillaries around type 1 fibers increased more than the block uh, group. But we should bear in mind that there are huge individual variations here. And especially for for these measures, we had uh, a lower number of subjects uh, completing the tests. Um, so I, I wouldn't <laughs> lay my head on the block or what you say <laughs> uh, uh, and say that block periodization would improve red blood cell volume more than traditional periodization because the, this is a subject, uh, this is a, a, a very non-homogenous group we, we investigated and the responses are not necessarily uh, completely uh, the same. Yeah, and um, obviously also mechanistic uh, findings are very interesting and important, but at the end of the day, if you're an athlete or a coach and you're looking to see how can I improve performance for myself or for my athlete, then uh, those changes or those differences, potential differences between the groups didn't at the end of the day lead to a difference in, in actual performance in any of the performance measures or even the yeah. performance-related physiological markers like uh, like VO2 max and, and so on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so as, as scientists, we, we only use this to explain what we see in the performance measures. But for the athletes, as you say, the most interesting thing is, of course, do I, do I improve my 40-minute time trial power? That is yeah. what I'm taking home. I don't care about whether I got more blood or whether it's because I got better capillarization or that is, this is for for us <laughs> and yeah, yeah. to to enjoy but at least for for the power output measures for the time trials it's pretty consistent uh, the improvements so of course there's a di divergence uh, between each subject but almost uh, all of the participants when improved yeah as, as you would expect when uh trained athletes but not elite athletes increase their training volume by 40 percent then that's uh, pretty pretty normal I, I would say yeah and, and expected but it's also a good thing like it just shows that it doesn't have to like you can improve your performance in many different ways but if you're not at your capacity in terms of training volume then that is a potentially a pretty easy not simple not easy way of improving your performance yeah yeah Exactly. So, but, so what, uh, what what would the conclusions be from this study? And we can also here maybe compare to <laughs> the prior evidence, including that meta-analysis that you mentioned that that previously had found a potential performance benefit of block periodization versus traditional periodization, which you then did not find in yeah. the end. Yeah, so, so we conclude from this study that our data, at least, does not support the hypothesis that block periodization is superior in improving the endurance performance of trained cyclists when you compare it to a best practice traditional periodization, uh, where we use a cyclic progressively increasing training load. Um, and this is maybe some of the one of the key points here, because comparing to the previous studies who found an improvement greater improvement of block periodization. Many of those used 
a block periodization of high intensity training for one week, doing five sessions in one week, for instance, and then had three weeks of low intensity training where they just included one high intensity session. We included, and I, we included both low intensity, moderate intensity, and high intensity training. So if you are pretty well trained and you are doing traditional periodization of only low intensity and high intensity training, and you do two high intensity training every week. This is not pushing a lot of boundaries, likely. So this is maybe the reason why a block periodization of high intensity training for more trained athletes uh, could be a good idea. But when we compare it to our um, our design, where we gradually increase the load in the traditional periodization group, we do not see the differences. So I, my best guess is that this is this could be one of the reasons why previous studies have found differences between block and traditional periodizations. Yeah, and uh, I might add to that speculation that uh, when you do when those previous studies have done five high intensity workouts per week plus then one maintenance for the remaining three weeks that's something that uh you can many athletes could do that for four weeks for a four week block where only one of those weeks is that super concentrated dose of high intensity but then if you try to repeat that for another four week block and another four week block like you had 12 weeks in your study it might not be as repeatable uh it, it might just be too much so so what you did with 12 weeks with you know just slightly less concentrated doses is more, I would say, ecologically valid for what would be actually achievable in the real world when you want to train for a sustained period and, and not just for, for four weeks. Yeah, and this is, uh, this is a great point. And this is yeah, <laughs> spot on what we thought when we designed the study. That we wanted something that was as close to what the athletes uh, could do or just the, the more trained majority uh, of athletes uh, could do uh, and complete but again we could, we could take into account that the there was a, a big difference between the training level of the guys we included in this study so hypothetically so for some the block periodization would be a huge overload and for others it wouldn't it would be pretty easy to to complete um, but you would expect if that if one person is at its limits, uh, his or her limits, when they do the high-intensity blocks, for instance, you would expect that the first session they do of high-intensity high intensity intervals is the best, and then they will gradually decrease and cannot maintain the high power outputs or the high uh, relative intensities. But we actually didn't see that. We didn't see that the block periodization group had a lower relative intensity compared to the traditional group they were actually equal they were pushing just as much um so this might not be the case um mm, yeah and you also talk about and, and this maybe uh, cycles back a little bit to to what you mentioned there with the case study from uh from the skier uh that that potentially just what this shows is that, that well there's maybe 
a room in in the toolbox for using block prediction as a tool, but it's not necessarily something that people should rush out and think that well, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, so can you speak <laughs> about that a bit? <laughs> well, I think um, if you are if you are in the case that you are an athlete and you have somehow stagnated in your uh, training improvements, you you become stale, you're doing the same things and you don't get any improvements. Um, sometimes drastical measures are, are needed. And I guess that I would suggest that trying block periodization as another tool to see, can you um, try to mix things up, uh, not only for the training adaptations, but also for the psychological purpose that you're you're switching lanes, sort of. For some athletes, block periodization is perfect. They only have they have one week, just full focus, only high-intensity training. That fits them perfect, and then they know, okay, I have three weeks where I can just keep it low and steady and only need to focus on one session, where, which is my maintenance um, session. And for some, that works. For others, it doesn't it, also uh, depends on how fast they recover between these exercises, how deep they go. So you could speculate that a, a very anaerobic type uh, of guy can go really deep with the high intensity training uh, in each session and will yeah, possibly become even more overtrained, if, if not, not necessarily overtrained, but overloaded uh, and would require longer time to recover from that. Uh, compared to a person not as anaerobically uh, focused, so I, I think it's it should be a, it should definitely be a tool in your toolbox, and you should try it out um, in a part of the season where it it's not that big of a risk. So you shouldn't introduce it a first time uh, after the first competition uh, you're you're going to peak at. Yeah, I think the, the modality is also an important consideration. So uh, a lot of the studies that do exist are in cycling, but then again, that case study in skiing uh, is a good example. And and just from a practical perspective, I'm thinking that a sport like skiing is a really good example where it could work. Cycling, yeah. it's not weight-bearing, but at the same time, it's very focused on on specific muscle groups so maybe if you yeah. could take it too far there and load specific muscles a bit too much whereas swimming is a sport where you can see it working really well because yeah, indeed you don't necessarily load uh, any one muscle group like a crazy amount it's more of a whole body no. No. workout so so that and it's also not weight bearing so so, so i think yeah. that skiing skiing and swimming intuitively seem like great sports where it really has the potential to work well yeah i certainly agree and it, it's it's the same if you if you say with running that would be the opposite that it yeah, could yeah. very fast become uh, a huge load uh, if you introduce yeah. five or six high intensity sessions a week um for someone who is not uh, on the highest level and even for the guys on the highest level um so really bear in mind that if you are in the weight bearing exercises, it's uh, you have to consider that as well. Yeah. Um, are there any other practical take home messages or any other conclusions that you would uh, you would give or that you would take from from this? 
I think um, some some of the things I would highlight is uh, definitely we it, it's not it's not news that we improve our time trial performance when we uh, do more exercise, more training. Um, but one of the interesting things here is uh, the explanatory factors, and we did see an improvement in the growth efficiency in the more fatigued state. And I think it's interesting to see that we can actually, only from 12 weeks of training, we can see an improvement in efficiency in well-trained, in, in okay-trained people. Um, so this, in, to me at least, this is a part of the explanation of why they improve at least the five-minute uh, time trial. And I would I would guess for triathletes competing for much longer periods, for instance, it is also uh, an, an improvement of, of interest and try to focus on. And relating to some of the other uh, work we've done, including sprint training, we see that also improves growth efficiency in the more fatigued state. So this might be something that you want to focus on. Yeah, no, those are those are great points, and uh, yeah, good note to uh, to end this discussion on. But uh, before before we go into the rapid fire questions, do you have what are you working on right now? I, I should say as, as well that the this study that we've been discussing it, I think it was published uh, earlier this year, just a few months ago. Even though, as you say, it was actually conducted earlier, or maybe I'm maybe yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. It, it took some time to do all all, all the computer yeah. stuff and and all that. So it was, uh, I think it was conducted in 2019. Just came out in March here, 22. So. Yeah. Science is not maybe not that fast. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's good that you good that you remember remember all of these things anyway, <laughs> because I just assumed that it was a little bit fresher. Um, yeah. But yeah, what are you working on right now? Well, it, it, it's uh, it's still uh, under progress and uh, a bit of a secret, but I can say that it's right. uh, it's a dietary intervention where we manipulate the amount of dietary protein and carbohydrate over six weeks where we totally controlled everything that the athletes eat and drink for these six weeks Um, and we've included triathletes and cyclists in in this project and so it's a collaboration with team denmark which is uh, the national sport uh, federation or or what could say Um, so it's it's pretty interesting we are of course focusing on how <clears throat> dietary manipulations affect their performance, but also a bunch of uh, molecular markers and muscle protein synthesis. All right, cool. Well, we'll follow you on Twitter and then I'm sure there will be news in due Please time. Do. So I have some new rapid fire questions. You're actually the first guest to try these ones and because obviously the classic ones that I ask every guest, you have already answered in episode 300. Uh, and normally I don't ask rapid fire questions the second time a guest comes on, but <laughs> I decided that let's start with some new rapid fire questions for uh, for repeat guests. So so these are quite different. And the first one is, what's your favorite place to train? I guess uh, Norway would be the place. <laughs> I miss the mountains now living in Denmark. Yeah. And uh, what is a bucket list race or event that you would want to do? I really wanted to go to uh, Haute Route. Um, Actually, but uh, we're doing Mallorca three three hundred and twelve. I think it's called um, yeah. this next year. So looking forward to that. That's definitely also on the bucket list. 
Yeah, cool. And uh, if you could acquire expert level in any skill in the world for yourself in an instant, what would it be? I would really love more insight in into the statistical program R and more statistics in general. Right. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Uh, it's always uh, something that you can broaden. Um, been studying that for quite some time, but it's that's a lot to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, and and finally, where can people follow you and your work? Uh, usually, I post uh, all new publications we have and on Twitter, and you can follow me at Elmquist Nikki. Um, that's my Twitter handle. Otherwise, you can go to ResearchGate, um, also on the Nikki Winfield Elmquist there. Um, also, publish everything there. Great. Thank you so much, Nikki. It was great to talk to you again and uh, looking forward to seeing what new work you have coming out in the next few months and years. Thank you for having me, Michael. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. We will have links to Nikki's profiles on Twitter, Instagram, and ResearchGate, his previous uh, podcast episode for the triathlon show, and of course, the study we discussed here and some other relevant studies mentioned. This includes uh, the meta-analysis that we mentioned that uh, did a systematic review and meta-analysis of block periodizations, effects on endurance training compared to traditional periodization. And through that, if you want to go deeper into individual uh, studies that have been conducted, then you can find the references there. But I will also link directly to a study called Block versus traditional periodization of high intensity training or of HIT, two different paths to success for the world's best cross country skier. Uh, just because we talked about that one specifically in the episode, and I think it looks like a very interesting one to uh, to go and have a look at. Uh, and of course, if you enjoyed this episode, then be sure to go back to episode 300 and listen to uh, Nikki's previous appearance on that triathlon show where we discussed the training responses and performance improvements resulting from including sprint training in your cycling program. With 7.3 words now behind us, for most of the triathlon world, the season is well and truly over and our focus turns towards next year's goals, maybe after some well-earned recovery. If you know that you want to really improve your performance next year or you have some specific goals, big or small, that you really want to achieve, the best way of making that happen and maximizing your potential is to work with a good coach. If you're even slightly thinking about getting a coach, then I would encourage you to check out our coaching page on scientifictriathlon.com to learn more about how it works, how we work, and uh, even read the large number of testimonials that we have from uh, other athletes like you. You can read more about our coaches, and if you're interested in chatting with us about it, just email me directly. We would love to, love to help you on your triathlon journey, whether you're a beginner or a seasoned pro. For next Monday's episode, I haven't yet at the time of recording this decided which uh, interview I will publish, but I have several really exciting guests lined up. So do subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already subscribed to make sure that you don't miss anything. And finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.